Today we are, uh, the passage is actually going to cover, the, the message is actually going to cover a very large portion of scripture from Exodus 7.14 through uh, chapter 10.29. We're not going to read all of that, I'm going to read the, uh, the, the passage that covers the first plague of nine plagues that are covered in those chapters, in, that, in those verses, and then we're going to use that as a kind of a jumping pad to uh, talk about uh, how God is using this not only to show us what he's done, but what he's doing in our lives as well. So with that in mind, I'd just like to pray. Thank you, God, so much for your grace, your mercy to us as people. Thank you that you, as we have already sung here this morning, you are the Lord of all. You are, uh, you are better than anything else. And Lord, I pray today, God, that you will hide me behind you, behind your word, behind the cross, by, behind the gospel, Lord. <clears throat> may you be exalted, may we become small, and may we and, and rejoice over the work that you have done to redeem us and save us. We give you praise for it all, in Jesus' name, amen. And so we're going to go ahead and read uh, verses 14 through 25 of chapter 7, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll give some comments after that. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and turn it, it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will go weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over the rivers, their canals, their, their ponds, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, <clears throat> but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take, an even, take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now I'm sure, as, some, as many of you know, uh, the book of Exodus is part of the first five books of the Bible that are many times referred to as the Pentateuch or the Torah. It's the books that Moses wrote. You, you all have a, your values, part of your values that I love is the word legacy. 
And you're, you're about not just today, but you're about a generations to come. People that will follow the Lord. Families that are built on Jesus Christ himself. And so the book of, uh, the book, the first five books of the Bible were written to give the children of Israel a sense of where their legacy comes from. Beginning with the God of creation. Moving on and showing the fall of man and moving into the redemptive story that begins as God's forming his people through Abraham, uh, the man of faith, and, and passing that on through Isaac and Jacob. He preserves the children of Israel uh, uh, by sending them to Egypt because he'd already sent Joseph, who was, uh, who was a slave, turned prisoner, turned second in command to Pharaoh himself, and God preserved the children of Israel. But 400 years has passed now. And they've been, and basically Joseph and everybody else have been forgotten. The children of Israel have multiplied greatly. They're only seen as a threat to Pharaoh and, and the people of Egypt. And we come into this and God is, is, has raised up Moses to bring the people out of Egypt who are now under oppression, now under slavery, now under uh, hard rule. And last week we saw as as God sent uh, Moses and Aaron into the palace, into the presence of Pharaoh, and um, as, as Pharaoh asked for proof of who this, quote, Yahweh is, uh, God told them to put the staff down, and, and the staff was thrown down before Pharaoh. It turned into a serpent, and then the magicians it, it imitated it in a f somewhat feeble attempt, but they imitated this thing. It, it turned into... into uh, serpents as well, but the, the picture here is what is beautiful, is what, what is happening in these chapters. God, the staff of God swallows up these staffs of the magicians. Uh, we've worked for years among indigenous people that have an animistic mentality and everything has a spirit or an energy or, or something behind it and they have these men called shamans that uh, supposedly control all this stuff and what you're seeing here is God taking and, and challenging and showing his superiority over every kind of man-made shaman, medicine man, witch, whatever you may call it, he is showing his superiority, superiority over that. We're seeing God establishing his rule, his reign. Uh, before we enter into this <clears throat> and, and, and kind of break it down over uh, in, in this message, I want to relate to a couple of incidents that happened to us over the last 25 years of being in a Latin country. We have observed conflicts. This is a conflict we're seeing, or this is, a, this is God exercising judgment, and we're seeing this, and, and it's a different thing to look at it depending on your perspective. And when I was in Oaxaca in, in 2001, September 11th, 2001, I think that's a, a date that kind of stands out for many of us. Some of you maybe not, but for many of us it stands out. There's something incredibly different about watching what happened on September 11th. Uh, there was a, there were, to hear uh, Mexicans uh, fleeing from, a, or getting, coming out of the restaurant and saying, ellos están atacando los norteamericanos en Nueva York. They're attacking the North Americans in New York. 
And I, I, and, and I go into this restaurant and I'm looking on the television and I'm watching as the jet is flying into the Twin Towers. And I'm watching as the Twin Towers are starting to crumble. And I'm seeing it as, the, as a recognition. This is not, this is not coincidence. This is, this is directly attacking one of the strongest economic sense of power that the North Americans represent, that the United States represents. And it affects me totally different than all the other Mexicans looking at it. They're looking at it like something is happening out there. They are, they are probably a lot like us look at this war that's happening between Russia and the Ukraine right now. For us, we, we care, it's, it hurts, it's, it, it, we feel it, but we don't feel it like Ukrainians do. The other conflict, if you want to call it that, it wasn't quite as traumatic, was in 2014. And we were in Ecuador at the time. I am from Seattle, and I am a major Seahawks fan. Now, I know you guys have your own team, whatever that's called, but, it, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I am this major Seahawks fan, and they have had this incredible season, and they are coming to the Super Bowl. And we are in Quito, planting a church in Quito called La Fuente, and, um, and this is Super Bowl Sunday, and I am so psyched to get to watch the, the football game. I invite all these young people from La Fuente to come and be a part of it. And it, it was incredible how many uh, Ecuadorian young people came to, to the house and we set up a projector and pop popcorn and just had this great time. And I'm telling you guys, this was amazing. I mean, the Seahawks, it was, it, you know, the, the Denver Broncos, they have... Uh, they have uh, Peyton Manning, who's legendary quarterback. And then this young guy, Russell Wilson, had been there with the Seahawks for a few years, and he was having this fantastic season. But when it came to the Super Bowl, I mean, there was no competition. I mean, th these guys, the, the Seahawks are, are a machine. The defense is totally dominating the offense uh, of Seattle, of, uh, of Denver, and, uh, and keeping Peyton Manning under control while the, the offense of the Seahawks is just marching, marching forward. 43 to 8, they won the Super Bowl. I am psyched. I'm going crazy. All, my Equ all the Ecuadorians are looking at me like I'm from some other planet. And uh, I'm just so, so thrilled. And then I find out that the uh, majority of them were there for the halftime show with Bruno Mars. So, <laughs> All of this to say, it depends when we see or are observing a, a conflict or we're observing a battle, it depends on the perspective we're coming from. Today we're looking at God dismantling the Egyptian gods. Today we're looking at God establishing rule over uh, Egypt and establishing his people as the people that are chosen and set apart. And I want us today to put ourselves in the middle of this story and realize that God is still about dismantling the gods of this world, all the wannabe gods. 
Last week in, in Cartersville, I mentioned that this, these chapters are setting us up with a stark contrast between two human leaders, Pharaoh and Moses. Moses is one who has been humbled before God. He spent 40 years in the wilderness after, after the incident with the Egyptian in, in Egypt and fleeing for his life. He has had this burning bush experience and has wrestled through to obedience to God. And on the other hand is Pharaoh. Pharaoh who represents the, the, the power, the, the human power as it were. He's considered a god himself among the pantheon of Egyptian gods. We are also set up with a stark contrast between two other powers. The gods of Egypt and the one and only true God, Yahweh, the great I Am. We are also being set up with the contrast that exists from, the, from Scripture between the deceptive power of the serpent and the ultimate authority and power of the one who will crush the serpent's head, Jesus Christ. And in the middle of this story, because of the work of the Holy Spirit of inspiration, revelation, and illumination, this story, which took place over 3,400 years ago, is speaking right to the contrasts that are evident in our own lives. God is waging war against the gods of our own lives. You say, I don't have gods in my life. I'm not an idolater or something like that. Uh, I just was reading a couple weeks ago in uh, the commentary on the book of Acts, F.F. F. Bruce writes, sometimes we are not even aware of idols in our society any more than a fish is aware of the water in which it lives, or we are aware of the air we breathe. Today we're going to look at this text, these, these chapters, and we're going to show, first of all, number one, the intentional, strategic, and focused dismantling of the gods of Egypt. Secondly, we're going to show that out of that, Pharaoh's heart is being hardened constantly. And finally, we're going to show that how God uses all of this to separate out and manifest who are the true people of God. So first of all, with the intentional, strategic, and focused dismantling of the gods of Egypt. <clears throat> I, I just got to tell you this. You guys are majorly cool. Uh, you, you have these, how many, ha did you, how many have your little uh, <clears throat> study guide with you today? Awesome. That is so cool. I mean, I'm like, when I'm preparing for this, I'm reading this, I'm going, this is, this is gold. Uh, um, um, we're we're, we're going to, uh, I've made arrangements that all the Spanish translations, Lord willing, are going to be able to be passed on to us that I can help with our pastors down in Ecuador. In that, you're going to see the patterns that are, are there. That these nine, nine plagues that we're looking at, ten, ten total, but we're looking at nine plagues, these patterns are, are arranged in three groupings, and each grouping has a pattern with it. What we see in this is that God, first of all, God is telling Moses with the first of those three plagues, he's telling Moses to confront Pharaoh in the morning by the Nile. And in the second plague of the, each each grouping of three, he is saying, is asking Moses to confront Pharaoh during the day in his palace. 
And in the third grouping, uh, third one of the groupings of three, he is telling him, he's having the plague strike without warning, without anything, just randomly. What we're seeing in this is an intentionality and a strategy that God is attacking Pharaoh, first of all, in his own times in the morning. It's this time when he would go by the Nile and give his oblations and his, and his prayers to the God of the Nile. And God's coming to him and attacking his trust in the gods of Egypt. He's also coming in and he's attacking the, the Pharaoh in his time, in his place where he is in his, in his position of authority and power in the palace. And finally, by attacking randomly without warning, he's shaking his sense of security. In the second diagram... We are seeing, and you, you can see this, that God is not only, not only rattling and shaking Pharaoh's world and trust and all of those things, but he is also attacking the pantheon of Egyptian gods. With the first plague, when the water is turned to blood, he's a, he, he, it's directly against the Hapi, the god of the Nile River. I don't know if it's Hapi, Hapi, whatever. But I'm going to use a little bit more of a Spanish slant on it. Hapi. <clears throat> Frogs. Heket, the goddess of fertility, water, and renewal. With the gnats and the lice, he's attacking Geb, the god of the earth. With the flies, he's attacking Kepri, the god of creation and rebirth, depicted with the head of a fly. With the, the, the death of the livestock, he's attacking Hathor, goddess of love and protection depicted with the head of a cow. With the boils, he's attacking Isis, the goddess of medicine and healing. With the hail, he's attacking Nut or Nut or however you want to say it, goddess of the sky. And with the locusts, he's attacking Serapia, the goddess of protection from locusts. And finally, with the plague of darkness, He's attacking the supreme God, the sun god, Ra. Now I want you to think about it, realize in this, this is so intentional, strategic, and focused in the way God is doing this through Moses. Without doubt, the effect of all of this would be that of shock, would be that of embarrassment, of shame, of a total sense of doubt and dismay on the part of Pharaoh, on the part of the magicians, and, on, and with the people of Egypt. The psalmist puts it this way, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. God is about bringing these worlds, these, these idols of the world down, the God, wannabe gods down. What we see in this is an ongoing hardening of Pharaoh's heart. As you've seen in your manual, the book of Exodus uh, describes this. There's various places, almost 20 different references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes it's Pharaoh's hardening his heart, and other times it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And this is a struggle for some. 
This idea that God would actually hold accountable somebody for the hardening of their heart when God's sort of involved with hardening their heart too. It seems unjust, unfair. Well, first and foremost, <laughs> we need to remember who God is and who we are. It reminds me of Job, the book of Job, when God has allowed many things to be taken away, family and, and riches and all this stuff to be taken away, and finally even allowed Job to be suffering physically with tremendous things. And Job is saying, oh, I wish I would never have been born. It would be better if I hadn't even ever come out of the womb. And then God shows up. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Oh, man. <laughs> that, just, that scares the snot out of me. But anyway. <clears throat> I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors that burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling bad and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors? And he goes on to talk about the beasts and the, and the beasts of the field and the, and the beast Leviathan and all these things that he creates and sustains and controls. And it comes to the end where Job is absolutely flattened. He says, I, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Paul answers those who question God's justice as he's talking about the heart uh, for Israel and that some have been chosen for mercy and others not. Romans 9 says it this way, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This, this whole aspect of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is so that God's name would be glorified, so that he would be lifted up among the nations. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Folks, I really do believe we need that a lot of us have forgotten where we fall on the food chain. <laughs> we are here today. Those of you who are, are followers of Jesus, you're here as a product of mercy and grace. It should humble us. Who are we to tell God how he should make his name great in the world? We, of all people, should be the most grateful, thankful, humble, filled with gratitude, worshipful people. In the same time that all this is going on, God is manifesting the true people of God. At the time that Pharaoh's heart is hardening, God 
is moving forward to show his love for his people. The third plague, one of the ways he does it is showing his superiority over all those who would think that God, the gods of Egypt are stronger. By the third plague, the, the magicians have somewhat imitated everything in the first couple of plagues, but by the third plague, you've got the gnats coming and the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there are gnats on man and beast. In the fourth plague, it's God separates the people. He says, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. In the fifth plague, when the cattle are killed, it says, and the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. In the sixth plague with the boils, these magicians that had, had strutted their stuff, so to speak, it says in this sixth plague with the boils, they, so they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. In the seventh plague with the hail, God is giving, he's not only protecting Israel, but he's giving opportunity for the Egyptians to believe in who he is. And he says this, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt, from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word, catch it, feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, <laughs> hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. The eighth plague of locusts. The scriptures say, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long? <laughs> How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? God is separating out this special people chosen by him. And he's showing himself absolutely superior to everything that Pharaoh and the Egyptians have trusted in. And finally, in the ninth plague, you see the culmination of Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. When he says, as, 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 the, as the plague comes, the plague of darkness, that strikes at the very core of their polytheism, the sun god Ra. 
And Pharaoh says, never show your face here again. The hard-heartedness totally taking over. What is the son God known for? He was the king of deities. He was the father of all creation. He was the patron of the sun, of heaven, kingship, power, and light. He was not only the deity who governed the actions of the sun, he could also be the physical sun itself as well as the day, according to their belief system. And God showed himself supreme. In, these, in, in all of this, Yahweh has shown himself superior in every way. In all of this, there were hardening, there was those whose hearts were hardened, but at the same time, you're seeing uh, the children of Israel being set apart and others, even of the Egyptians, who are recognizing this is the true God. Folks, God is intentionally and strategically focusing his authority on tearing down the gods of this world and getting his people to shine in the midst of darkness. He is doing that in our lives. He is intentionally, strategically, and in a focused way dismantling the gods that are in our life. John Calvin is famously quoted as saying, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. What are your idols? I know a lot of mine. The ones that compete for God's supremacy in our life. God dismantles. He, not just, he disemboweled the gods of Egypt in front of the Egyptians and in front of the Israelites. In a short while, these, the, the children of Israel are going to leave Egypt and they're going to receive the Ten Commandments. And the very first commandment that God is establishing right here, right now with the children of Israel you shall have no other gods before me. God is first and foremost wanting our heart and our worship of him and him alone. John Piper says it this way, worship essentially is essentially an inner stirring of the heart to treasure God above all the treasures of the world, a valuing of God above all that is valuable, a loving of God above all that is lovely, a savoring of God above all that is sweet, an admiring of God above all else that is admirable, a fearing of God above all that is fearful, a respecting of God above all that is respectable, and a prizing of God above all that is precious. That's what he wants. That's worship. Many of us are functional idolaters. We give the appearance of true followers of Jesus, but our sense of security, our sense of identity, our sense of value, our sense of pleasure and contentment are rooted in other gods. Gods of finances, job, prosperity, possessions. Gods of relationships, popularity, social media. How many friends do I got? Gods of politics, red, blue, some who try to be purple. <laughs> Gods of pleasure, be they sexual or sensational, adventure, recreation and ease, comfort. Gods of success, accomplishments, degrees, titles. Gods of control, position, and power. Folks, God will never share his adoration with another. 
He will not be relegated to Sunday or compartmentalized into our eternal fire insurance program. He is either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. When God is about rescuing lives, He will aim at our gods. To the rich young ruler, He says, go sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow Me. He steps into a crowd that wants a crossless gospel and He says to them, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever will lose, would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What gods is the Lord faithfully dismantling in your lives today? Where are you finding real life, real identity, real value, real joy, real security? Look what the psalmist says about these man-made idols. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. What idols is our heart, our hearts producing today? This idea of the ongoing hardening of Pharaoh's heart is something that we're all infected with too. Sadly, many of us are just like that. God calls us to obedience and we respond in obstinance. I don't struggle. Honestly, I don't struggle. After, you know, I was saved uh, 47 years ago. And in this long, in this journey, I don't struggle with who is responsible or where, where hard-heartedness starts. I don't have to look farther than the mirror to see where it begins. I have inebriated myself with my own sense of rightness and goodness that I don't want to hear God show me an area where I am being idolatrous. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to obey and in that string of sentences, we have just heard the greatest idol that you and I will ever face. It's the God I. I don't want. I want this. I don't want that. I want God to be this way and not that way. And God, as he has done with me, he will faithfully dismantle our egos and he will bring us to that place of contrition, broken contrition, contrition in which we experience this thing called mercy and grace. And it flattens us and it humbles us. And we begin to understand why we're we were created and who is the creator and who is created. And we begin to throw away all these false gods. God, through all of this, is making us into His people. He's separating us out as He dismantles our gods, as He's forming us and shaping us, softening our hearts. While the world is frantically trying to figure out how to manage in a world with financial chaos, God teaches His people how to be content in everything in Him, how to, how to be generous with all that they've been given. 
While this world is struggle, struggling over creating their own sense of sexual identity, be it uh, transgender, uh, cross-gender, whatever it may be, God is forming marriages and families who are based on the Creator and not their own creations. While this world is seeking the good life of comfort and ease, God is calling His people to the abundant life of feasting on Him, on His Word. While the world is busy making their own gods in their image, God is making, the true God is making men and women, singles, marrieds, black, white, of every tribe, of every nation, of every tongue. He is making them into a people unto Himself, conforming them into His image, and that, that people will give Him glory. He's putting His Word into their mouths. He is separating from the rest. He is calling them out of slavery and into a life of worship and obedience. He is writing His law upon their hearts, putting His Word in their mouth, and He's calling them out of every nation and tribe to come and follow Him. He is creating a people whose motivation is entirely different than the gods of this world. Paul says it this way, for the love of Christ controls me, controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I hope this morning, or in this time together, you have not been listening and looking at this like just a Super Bowl. Or not even like the, the Twin Towers. But you have put yourself into that place in which God himself is speaking directly into our hearts today. This is the God of the universe establishing himself as the only and true God, the great I am. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. Whatever puny gods we may have placed our trust, faith and trust in, they will be crushed. They will be annihilated before the one true God who will ultimately crush all those who would put themselves before him. This is not harshness, friends. It is divine and loving justice. He has given us every opportunity to repent and believe. If we stay hard-hearted, we deserve the wrath that, that would come. Yet we have already seen this wrath on display. It was displayed on the cross. On his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life of obedience that you and I could never live. He died the death on the cross that should have been our death. 
He received in himself the wrath of God that should have been our wrath, that we received. He was abandoned by the Father like we should have been. Yet in that darkest hour, he rose again, triumphant. He conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered the grave. And today, he is offering us he is calling us to be reconciled to him. His nail-pierced hands are reaching out to us today that, that we would repent and believe. If you stay hardened, if you stay hardened to this message, if you're here today and you stay hardened to this message, you will receive a just punishment. It's not just your sins that condemn you. It's refusing to hear God calling you. It's refusing to respond to his invitation to follow him. Pharaoh's hardened. Other Egyptians believed. It's our choice. God is calling you to salvation, to love, to life. Whatever gods you may be trusting in will be crushed. Like Paul wrote, God is making his appeal this morning through me, through us as a church. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Come to Jesus. He who was made, he who was perfect was made sin for you so that you could be made righteous in Jesus today. Not with our own righteousness, but with the righteousness of God. And if you're here as a believer this morning, it's a time for us to place before the king every idol that has competed with his lordship in our life. He is supreme. He is real life. He's real treasure. He's the pearl of great price. He is worthy of our worship. Thank you, Jesus, today for your goodness, your grace, your mercy to us. Thank you for your word that shows that you, oh God, are the only one worthy of honor and praise and glory. As we have sung, you are better than anything we could ever experience in this life. So Lord, for those of us who are following you, may we, God, submit every, everything that would compete with you. May we submit it before you and may you be the only object of our worship. And for those of, that are here perhaps and have not yet turned to you, May today their heart be softened before you. May the, script, may, the, may the word of God through the power of the Spirit enter in and may they repent, turn to you, and believe in you and give their lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.